Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. So let's see, for, uh, for all those, as Ralph was saying, for all those who believe that sports is the, is the access to heaven and, and the thing to get all excited about, uh, this might excite you just a little bit. Can you put that image up there, Chris? Uh, yeah, Scott, that's for you. Um, Dan, I'm sorry, man. You know, uh, but I bleed blue too. It, it was, it's all I can do to uh, put that up there, but it is what happens. And it's one of those things that, that make me go, I am so glad that heaven doesn't depend on the outcome of a ball game. Uh, yeah. Yeah, some of you may have some dollars hanging on a ball game or something, but uh, certainly not your soul, and, and that's, a good, that's a good thing. I need something more sure than how a bunch of uh, just out of high school guys perform on a basketball floor. Um, but anyway, I, I guess I should congratulate all you Buckeye fans. I mean, you know, that's okay, uh, too. That's good. But still, you, you didn't get to heaven because they beat Kentucky. Um, Okay. Hey, listen, before I get to, to uh, sharing the message this morning, um, something that you need to be aware of, Clint Arthur, who is, is usually up here, and he leads the deaf ministry here at Christ Community, which you don't know this, because we haven't really touted it at all, but it's, it's one of the largest deaf groups in the whole state, in a church. I mean, this is... Uh, Uh, this is a big deal, and and I believe if I if if I remember Clint telling me right, in our community, in our area, there's about 250 deaf. Is that right? Okay, so, somewhere right in the 250 deaf. So there's a mission field right here, and and Clint's heart is about reaching those folks with the gospel of Jesus. And, and so I, I think his heart is shown in how they respond to him. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, he's over at the hospital this morning and having some complications. And so we're just going to be praying for, for Clint. So before I dig in, why don't we bow our heads together, all right? Father, I thank you so much for your wonderful mercy that you extend to us. And I thank you for... Brothers and sisters in Christ who we can share life with and share your mission with. I thank you for Clint and his heart and the burden of his heart to share your gospel with those who cannot hear. And so, Lord, I'm asking you this morning as he's over in the hospital that you'll simply be with him. That, that he, will, he will know your presence. I pray that you'll be with Pat, his wife, and... And I ask, Lord, that she has her heart filled simply with your peace, knowing that you've got Clint in your hands. You've got him, and we trust that to you. And so we ask you to simply have your way. I pray you give the doctors wisdom and guide them as they deal with Clint now. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Okay, 
If you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to ask you to turn to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Because in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, we are given, really, in this single verse, we're given volumes about Jesus Christ. Volumes. And so I I want to read the verse with you, and then we're going to uh, jump in together. You can take your bulletins and take your outline there, because we're going to work through it as well. The prophet Isaiah simply writes, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Now, what I'd like you to do in your bulletins, I want you to look at the two quotes I have at the, at the head of your bulletin. First, C.S. Lewis writes this, The Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. And then J.I. Packer writes, Remaining what he was, this is big now, Remaining what he was, he became what he was not. Christ was now not, or was not now God minus some elements of his deity, but God plus all that he had made his own by taking manhood to himself. So when Jesus comes on the scene, this is something that, that we need to fix within our hearts and our minds, because this is important. It's absolutely crucial what we're going to share this morning, the birth of Jesus, is absolutely crucial to the cross work of Jesus, what he did on the cross 33 years later. And it's simply this, that when he came as a baby in the manger, and the entire time he was in a human body, for that period of time, Jesus was both fully God, completely God, and fully human, completely human. He was both God and man all at the same time. God in the flesh, as we have referred a number of times. And in Isaiah 9, 6, Isaiah points that out, and he points it out in kind of a neat way. And so if you'll take your bulletins and look, I want you to notice, as a child and as a son. Because when, when Isaiah writes and he says, For unto us a child is born, he's talking about the humanity of Jesus. A child is born in the same way that you, when you were a baby, you were born. Jesus came in that way. We'll talk about that as we compare some scripture here. But at the same time, not only was the child born, but the son was given. So a child was born naturally, but this child that was born naturally through the mother was given by God. So this Jesus, who we worship and whose birth we celebrate, we're celebrating the fact that God and man came together in one, that Jesus is fully God and fully human. And and Isaiah is pointing that out. So in Isaiah 9, 6, you can fill this out in your outline. The first thing, he is born. So he's born in the same way that you and I were born. Jesus, this was not a... uh, a beam-me-up Scotty moment. This wasn't a beam-me-down daddy moment. This was Jesus coming and being born in the same way that you and I are born. And at the same time that he's born as a child, 
He's given as a son. So make sure you write that down there in your, in your outline. Second thing. He's born of a woman. I, I mean, excuse me. He's born or his mom is a virgin. I'll get that out right in a second. If you go over to Luke chapter 1 and you look at verse 34. How will this be, Mary asked the angel? Since I am a virgin. See, right before Mary asked the angel this, the angel tells her something. The angel says, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be with a child. And she's going, hang on a second. How could that happen? I've never been with anyone before. I'm a virgin. So, so Jesus here... Being born, he's born, his mom is a virgin. And not just, not just a young girl, because the word virgin simply means a young girl. She's probably 14 or 15 years old at the time. But rather, Mary goes, okay, wait a second. How can this happen? Because I've never been with a man. That's what that word virgin means there. I've never been with anybody. Let me tell you what, there's a huge risk here, and she knows it. There has to be great fear that comes on her, because if you'll remember this from the Old Testament, if, if Mary was pregnant and Mary wasn't married, then that means that Mary had sex before marriage, which means that she had committed adultery, which means that she's going to be stoned to death. She understands that. That's the culture she would have been raised in. Wait a second. How can this be? I haven't been with anybody. So, as a child, Jesus' mom is a virgin. But as a son, his dad is God. And we get that in Luke 1.35. The angel answered, here's how it's going to happen. The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now listen to me. I know that we cannot rationally explain the virgin birth. I know that the virgin birth is something we have to take completely on faith. But the virgin birth is absolutely crucial to Jesus being who he is. It is as critical as the resurrection of Jesus. You see, for Jesus to be God in the flesh, for him to be born of a virgin, the reason that's necessary is because we need the Jesus on the cross to be sinless. We need that. You see, if, if really Joseph and Mary had gotten together and, and they were engaged and it was kind of like, oops, okay, we're caught. If that's the case, then here's the problem with that. You've got Jesus, whose dad is really Joseph and whose mom would really be Mary. And you have Jesus, who's really no different than you and me. We've got Jesus, a sinner. And there's a problem with that. Because if Jesus is a sinner, if Jesus is a sinner, then Jesus on the cross is just another guy dying on a cross. 
So it's absolutely essential that, that we understand the virgin birth is critical to our faith. It's critical to it. And, and this is what Isaiah is declaring. As, as a, and this is what, of course, is being declared by, by Luke as he writes. This is what's being declared by the angel as the angel speaks. And that is that the child's going to be born of a virgin... And the way that's going to happen is the child's dad is going to be God. That's pretty cool. Does help you get in the mind of Joseph just a little bit, though, doesn't it? When Mary comes home and says, uh, well, uh, Joseph, I'm pregnant. Now, Joseph has every right to kill her at that time and But being the guy, uh, I remember asking the guys up at New Beginnings this question. How do you respond when she does that? And one guy goes, well, there's going to be a fight. And and Joseph, you can hear him going, okay, what happened? What do you mean you're pregnant? Can you just just hear, Mary? Uh, God did it. You know? We can sit here and smile at, at at the conversation that might have taken place there. But I can tell you, I, there were no smiles in that conversation. That was a difficult conversation to have, but yet then God put Joseph at ease as he sent an angel to Joseph to let, let him in on what was, what was actually going on. Okay, as, as a child, the third thing I have for you is that Jesus was going to be born of a woman. If you go over to Galatians chapter 4 and look at verse 4. Here's what we read. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. And we'll talk about that in just a little bit. So Paul is declaring through Galatians that this son, as a son, he's going to be born of a woman or as a child. But as a son, God is going to send him. Okay, God is sending Jesus into the world. Now, this is what I want us to understand. When did he decide to do this? When did God determine that it's time to send Jesus into the world? Remember last week, Scott was talking about when the stars were just right. As as Paul writes in Galatians 4.4, in the fullness of time, when everything was just right, God would send his son And that's when he did it. But when did the plan go into place? This is what I want us to understand. God didn't just come up with this idea after he realized that his creation had rebelled against him. He didn't look at his creation and begin to wring his hands and go, Oh no, what am I going to do with this mess? I I guess I'll probably have to send my own son to, to die and to pay for them. That's not what the scripture says. The scripture says that the plan for Jesus to come and die, to be born and to die for us, that plan was put into place before God even spoke one word of creation. God knew that his creation was going to rebel against him, and he loved his creation so much that even before they blew it, even before he created them, even before he spoke anything into existence, the plan was already in place. So Jesus isn't God's reaction to us. 
Jesus is God's plan A from the very beginning, from before the very beginning. So that's when this whole plan was put into place according to the Scripture. As a child, if you go over to Hebrews 2.17, you'll see that Jesus was fully human. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says, chapter 2, verse 17. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of his people. Now, I'm going to tell you something about this fully human stuff. Now, Scott addressed it just a little bit last week. We kind of wrestle with Jesus being fully human. We believe it. We believe it. We know our faith stands on it that God was fully human in Jesus. But when you begin to think about it, I'm going to tell you it makes you uncomfortable because all of a sudden your nice squeaky clean Jesus isn't that nice, squeaky, clean Jesus? Now, he's sinless, to be sure. And we're going to see here in just a little bit that he was tempted and all of that. For a few months, we had at our staff meetings, we had a staff discussion. Just to, as we would start our staff meetings, we would begin to study the humanity of Jesus. And you can work your way through Scripture and, and deal with the humanity of Jesus. I don't mean to be crude here. But I want you to think right now of Jesus being fully human, just like Paul says in Galatians 4.4. And I want you to picture Jesus having the same bodily functions you have. I mean, I want you to picture Jesus just for a second going, you might walk by him and go, man, did you do that, Jesus? You know, is that the fish? Um, I mean... That's Jesus, fully human. He, he was completely human, compu- completely functioning in the way that you and I function. See, and that makes us a, a little uncomfortable. Because, wait, wait a second, that's not the airbrushed Jesus that we see in pictures. I was, gosh, I don't know how long ago this was. I was, I, I saw a, uh, a musical a professionally done and performed musical of the greatest story ever told. And it was, the, the set was beautiful. The actors, they were so great. But every time Jesus would come on the scene, every time now, whether it was with a bunch of children, whether it was when he was being hassled by the Pharisees, no matter what it was, he would always walk across to the middle of the stage and he'd do this. He'd just smile like he was Superman because that fits that squeaky clean image that we have of Jesus in his humanity. But I'm telling you that Jesus' life was just like you. His feet stunk. They got dirty. He had to take a bath. His hair was nasty and oily at times. I mean, he, he stunk. He had B.O. He went to the bathroom. He ate. He burped. He cut the cheese. He did all that stuff. That's, and, and we go, okay, wait, 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 Rick, that's enough, that's enough. But he was fully human, and we need to grab that. But at the same time that he was fully human, Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, tells us that he was also 
fully God. Let me read this passage. Verses 15 through 19, Colossians 1. The Son, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. The word image means the exact representation. The firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him. So He wasn't just fully human, And functioning as a human, but he was fully God. Hebrews chapter 4, the writer of Hebrews says, and the next thing, he was tempted just like us. I want to read that passage. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, because he was fully human. So as a son, he was, I mean, as a child, he was tempted in every way that we are. And yet as a child, he was sinless, unlike us. Because the rest of Hebrews 4.15 says, yet he did not sin. So he was tempted in every way, and yet he didn't sin. And then the last thing I have for you in this comparison is that as a child, he paid our sin debt. But as a son, he makes us right with God. And we get that from a, a number of passages, but, but the most familiar and one you should commit to memory is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he, meaning Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin... So that we might become right with God. So that we might be the righteousness of God. So God takes His Son, His perfect sinless Son, and He puts our sin on His Son. And His Son lays down His life for you and for me. And in doing so, when we reach out to Him in faith, when we reach out to Him... Repent of our sin. Acknowledge Him as our Savior. We become His righteousness. Now, what does that mean? What's the word righteousness mean? I want you to get this. This is really simple. Righteousness means simply this. Rightness. That in reaching out in faith to Jesus Christ... God, seeing his death as the, as the acceptable punishment for our sin, he makes you right with him. He puts you in a right relationship, whereas before you were in a wrong relationship with him. You were in rebellion to him, but now you're in a right relationship with him because of Jesus. So as a child, he pays our sin debt, but as a son... Because of his sin debt, he is making us 
right with God. Why did Jesus come then? Why, why did we jump all through this? Matt hit on this a couple of weeks ago. I want you to look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. Because in here, John, John writes, if you look at the scripture, there's going to be about a dozen reasons where this question could be answered. Where Jesus would say, I have come that. I have come so that. So there are a number of reasons why Jesus came, but I want you to see, and I want to pick up on what Matt was sharing a couple weeks ago. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason, excuse me, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. The reason Jesus came was to destroy the devil's work. So what's the devil's work? I need to say this, and I need you to follow me, because I don't think it's difficult to identify when Satan is doing something, and I don't think it's difficult to identify his handprint. You can track this guy, and sometimes we get so wrapped up in what he's doing, we don't recognize that he's doing it. John 10.10 says that the thief, referring to Satan, the thief comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy. That's what he does. He kills, he steals, he destroys. Earlier in the, in the Gospel of John, in chapter 8, verse 44, John writes this. He's, he's recording Jesus' words. When Jesus says that Satan is a liar and the father of all lies, it's what he does. He's a liar and he's a father of all lies. You move on into the book of Revelation and referring to Satan, John writes in Revelation in in his vision, he writes that Satan is an accuser who goes about accusing people of sin. Now, this is kind of interesting to me. The word for accuser in the Scripture, one who accuses, the word is diabolos. Diabolos, where we get Satan. That's where accusation comes from. Now, follow me here. If we don't track, if we don't track what sits behind accusation, what sits behind lies, what sits behind things that kill, steal, and destroy, do you know what happens? We end up getting distracted from what we're supposed to be doing because we've got our eyes on all of this stuff. We're going, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. But do you understand that once we recognize that accusations and lies and things that kill, steal, and destroy aren't from God, those things are from Satan. Once we recognize where they come from, then we know who the enemy is. And once we recognize the enemy, then we can stand and look at the enemy and say, you know what, in the name of Jesus, this stuff's over. Don't let Satan derail you from what God 
wants you to do. Don't let it happen. There comes a time when you have to just boldly stand and say, Satan, we're done. We've discovered the source, and it's you. And we're not following you, and we're not giving into that anymore. Jesus came to totally undo Satan, to destroy him and to destroy his works. How would he accomplish it? In Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. I told the group last night, you know, we got the wonderful technology, which I, I love, and I love to use. It makes it easier. But every now and then, I just like to flip the pages of my Bible. So that's what I've been doing all morning, just kind of working through it. Look at this. This is how Jesus would destroy the works of Satan. Verse 28 of Matthew 20. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, look at this, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus first comes. This is how he's going to destroy the works of Satan. He's going to give his life as a ransom for many. The word ransom smacks of slavery. And what it means is that, that a slave who is, who is chained, who is bound to a master, and us, our master being sin, someone has to come along and pay to ransom us, to buy our freedom. And here Jesus steps in. The way he's going to undo Satan, the way he's going to destroy his works, is he's going to pay the price so that we can be set free. He's going to ransom us. And in ransoming us, he sets us completely free so we are no longer slaves to Satan and we're no longer slaves to sin but now we are servants or even slaves to Jesus Christ because he's the one who paid for us if you go to 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 24 1 Peter 2:24 Peter writes he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So the, so the next way, as we've already talked about just a little bit, the, the next way he's destroying the works of Satan is he is taking our sins and he is bearing it on his body. He's taking it on him. He's paying for it himself. You can't do it. I can't do it. You can't be good enough. I can't be good enough. It's on him. So he pays for it. He pays for it. He bears our sins in his body. In Hebrews 9, verse 28. <clears throat> in Hebrews 9, 28, the writer says, So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So, so the next way that he destroys the works of Satan is he sacrificed. Now, you have to understand this language of sacrifice. Until Jesus paid the price on the cross, until he did that, the, all of history, all of history was filled with people obeying sacrificial laws by killing bulls and goats and lambs and everything else, offering up sin, offering up sacrifice for their sin. But here's the problem. As the scripture says, the blood of bulls and goats can never completely take away sin. 
So all of this sacrificing going on in the Old Testament, all of this bloodshed in the Old Testament of people making sacrifice for their sin, it never completely took away their sin. All it did was roll back God's punishment for another year. And so they continually sacrificed so that they could keep delaying God's punishment. And if Jesus hadn't come, then we would still be sacrificing to delay God's punishment. But because Jesus came, he was sacrificed and his sacrifice was perfect and complete because he was sinless... And so we don't have to go through all the hoops of killing all these animals and shedding their blood for our sin because the very Lamb of God, Jesus, was sacrificed for us. And in His sacrifice, we have complete and total forgiveness. We don't have to do it anymore. It's done already. That's how He was going to destroy the works of Satan. And then lastly this, back to Galatians chapter 4. Verses 4 and 5. I want to read that again to you. And I want you to grab this gold nugget. But when the set time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption to sonship. And so the way... Jesus was going to destroy the works of Satan was in paying the price and sacrificing and ransoming us and doing all of that. He redeems us. He buys us back. And then he adopts us. Now, listen, you have got to grab onto this. This has become, for Rick Clark, one of the most liberating things in my life as a follower of Jesus. And sadly, I was not taught this for the longest time in my Christian walk. So early on, when I'd become a believer, when I'd become a follower of Jesus, much of my life was lived in fear. And I remember doing student ministry, and much of my ministry to young people was fear-driven, because there was something I didn't fully understand about God. You see, when Jesus comes, because He came... And he pays the price. When you and I reach out to faith in him, here's what he does. He adopts us into his family. Now we go, okay, that's cool. That's a nice image. You know, we were childless. I mean, we, we were fatherless. Uh, and, and now our father comes and adopts us. God adopts us. But there's so much more here. You see, what they understood in the Roman culture was this. When a, a father adopted a child in the Roman culture... The child, no matter what their age was, would be under the authority of their father and would be legally bound to their father as long as the father was alive. So until the father died, the child that was adopted is beholden to the father. That's just the way it was. I want you to grab this. Because when God adopts you into his family, he is your father and you are beholden to him until he dies. Now, do you get that? Because this father who we call God never dies. 
Now, do you get that? Because here's where, here's where I was. I was that guy who once I came to faith in Christ, and I mean, I, I was repentant. I, I wanted Jesus in my life. I wanted to live for him. I wanted to make him so happy. I wanted him to be so proud of me. I wanted, I wanted him to be able to pat me on the back and go, man, Rick, you're such a good guy. I wanted him to be able to say, I'm so glad you're on my team. You know, I wanted him to be that proud of me. But here was the trouble. I couldn't live it. And at some level, I still can't live it. And so every time I would blow it, every time I would fall back into sin, there's a reason why. There's a reason why in that little church pew I sat in, there was a path that led from my church pew up to the altar. Because I'd have to keep going back and getting saved all over again. Because I was certain that God had given up on me. I was certain that I was too bad for God. Why would you want a failure like me? And so I've been saved 27 times. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you even this morning might be sitting here going, yeah, that's me. I want to live for him, but I, and, and I, I tell him I'm going to, but it turns into nothing more than a New Year's resolution, and I fall all over again. Can I tell you something? You can be set free this morning knowing that your God who adopted you is not going to let you go. Your salvation, <clears throat> your, your salvation is all because of him. Yes, you reached out to him. Yes, you, you repented of your sin. You opened your heart up in faith. But even that wouldn't be possible had Christ not died for you. So he made salvation possible. It's all about him. And he is the one who keeps you. The keeping is all about him. And when you discover that, you'll find enormous freedom in Christ. And then you go, you might go, okay, wait a second. Rick, man, this sounds like a pretty cool deal here. So I can repent, and then God's going to adopt me, and he's going to keep me because he adopted me now. You're saying it's all on him. So I can go do whatever I want. This is a pretty good deal. And I'm saying to you, no, you're nuts. That's not right. Paul would say to you, if you're dead to sin, how are you going to live in it any longer? You have a new master. And so you, your heart, your desire, your life should be centered on living your life for your new master. Our lives need to be lived in response to the one who saved us and who is keeping us. Live our lives in response to that. That should be our response. So I'm wrapping it up with this. I want you to grab this. This Thursday, as we prepare to celebrate the birth of Jesus, I want you to know that he didn't come so that you and I could sit around and go, yeah, you know, Jesus, he's, he's a good guy. He's a great teacher, a great moral teacher. He's a prophet. 
That's not why he came. He came to destroy what Satan had started. He came to destroy the rebellion, and he did. And in destroying the rebellion, he sets out a choice to you and to me. So I want you to look at this last quote, C.S. Lewis. This is an often used quote by C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. Here's what he writes. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. C.S. Lewis says that's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd be either a lunatic on the level with a man who says that he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. When Jesus came, his mission was clear. He came and fulfilled his mission in giving his life for us and in doing so, completely dismantling, completely dismantling the devil. He pulled his teeth. He pulled his teeth. So he no longer has power over us because he's already been defeated. That's what Jesus came to do. And I, I for one, am so grateful because had he not come, I wouldn't be standing here free today. I wouldn't be standing here forgiven today. But because he came, I am standing here for that. And because he came, I'm living the rest of my life all I can for his glory and his purposes. And I'm inviting you to do the same. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for your word. And I thank you that in your word, you you don't leave us guessing what you're all about. But you tell us the most wonderful love story. The story of a hero God who would send his son to come and rescue people enslaved to the enemy. And Father, I thank you this morning for that day, that night, at a little church in Wilmore, Kentucky, when I cried out to you, I thank you that you answered, that you forgave me, and that you came and placed your spirit in me to live for you. I thank you that all these years you have walked with me through thick and thin. You've walked with me through my sin, and you've been there when I came running back. Father, I pray this morning 
that each of us here would, would experience that, that heart of gratefulness for what you have done. And Lord, that we would be emboldened to, to walk out of here and live our lives in response to you. I pray, Father, this morning for anyone sitting here who, as they've seen people baptized, declaring their allegiance to Jesus, as as they've heard the gospel, how I pray that if their hearts are not right with you, if they have not opened their hearts up to you as Savior, I pray, Lord, that today would be the day that they would reach out to you in faith. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. And for that, I give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So, before you head out this this morning, if if there are those of you who would like to talk more or would like to pray, would like to invite Christ to come and live in you, I'm standing right here the end of the service. I want to invite you to come. Ralph, I ask you to stand right here at the end of the service and just you can come up and talk with Ralph. Talk with me. Uh, seek out another staff member and heck, turn to the person next to you and say, hey, could you pray with me? I want to receive Jesus today. It doesn't take anybody with a special title or anything like that. Just reach out to him. That's what I encourage. You will not receive a better Christmas gift than salvation. Wow, that's the truth. Christ community, God bless you guys. I hope to see you Thursday night. If I don't see you, have a very, very Merry Christmas. See you later. Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.